Martha Lane Fox is a British entrepreneur, philanthropist, internet activist, and public servant. In this episode, we cover topics like serendipity and the triple bottom line, as well as how the digital world, like many of us, is having a midlife crisis and what we can do to increase our chances of coming out the other side better off for it. Martha knows because she's experienced this roller coaster a few times over in her career. And I think you therefore build products and services reflecting a worldview or a sense that you have. And that's why it's super important to have those diverse voices, not just at one bit of the funnel, but through the whole chain so that you can have different life views represented in products and services. In 1998, Martha co-founded Europe's largest travel and leisure website, lastminute.com, with Brent Holberman. They took it public in 2000 and sold it in 2005 in a historically successful exit. Martha became a crossbench peer in the UK House of Lords in 2013 as its youngest female member. And she was awarded a CBE, which is the highest ranking order of the British Empire Award, given to recognize a positive impact made in her work. In March 2014, she was appointed Chancellor of the Open University, and in 2017, she was appointed a member of the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy. Martha is a member of Twitter's Board of Directors and a non-executive director for Chanel. She is also a non-executive director for the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. She founded Dot Everyone in 2015, which is a charity fighting for a fairer internet and building a movement for responsible technology. In short, Martha is a remarkable human being and a fascinating example of true leadership. You'll want to stay tuned all the way to the end when Martha offers a surprising tip about how we can find solace, empathy, and inspiration through Hinterland, which is expanding our depth and breadth of knowledge. You're going to want to grab a paper and pen. There's a lot of good stuff in here. So, Martha Lane Fox, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. And thank you especially for being our very first female guest. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I wish that I was not often a female first, but I'm very happy to be so on your podcast. I think this is a common theme um, across your career that you, you've been a trailblazer in that way in, in many different areas of your life. So that seems Unint- like- Unintentionally, I have to tell you, often unintentionally, I think I'm sure you share that too. Sometimes you don't want to be that particular trailblazing phenomenon, but sometimes I look around and think still, why am I the only woman in this room? But exactly. keep on going. Here we go. I've spent most of my career as the only woman in the room. So I think we, we share some common ground on that. Yeah. So I wonder if you could start us at the beginning. How did you um, come to be such a trailblazer? I know that one of your very first enterprises was in the early dot-com era, as was mine. So I'm curious, before we get into that that first big um, company experience and your experience in the early dot-com era, what led you in towards digital space in the beginning? Total serendipity. You know, I wish I could say there'd been a master plan. There was not. Uh, I think my life has been built on being a bit of a magpie, perhaps. I find most things interesting, which is a joy, but also a challenge. I could honestly have gone in many different directions, I think, and I hope been relatively happy and tried my best to do well in them. Not saying I would have been good at them, but uh, I didn't have a master plan. I didn't do particularly well at university, well, less well perhaps than people thought I might do. I got rejected from going into the home office in the UK, the kind of homeland security for you in the US, because I wanted to go into the prison service and I thought I'd build a career. I wanted to go into criminal justice, but they rejected me because of my not very good degree. And so kind of all these things happen. I tried to get a job at Pearson, a big media company. I thought, no, maybe I don't want to go and be in a corporate. And then just through a friend of my uncle, some random connection, I ended up in a consulting company that was absolutely perfect for me. It was a startup. I was the 10th employee. My co-founder in my business later, uh, lastminute.com Brent, was the ninth employee. And so that changed my life because I made a very important connection. But also the company itself was looking at this incredible phenomena of the internet and how it was blowing apart the media and telecoms industries. So in one fell swoop, I was in a startup organization. I made networks and connections that were to change my whole life. And I was learning about probably one of the most transformational phenomena of the modern era. So it was just unbelievable luck. I think that's a theme I've heard 
among so many very, very successful people, especially tech entrepreneurs, is it wasn't their master plan. Really the commonality that you highlighted immediately is this insatiable curiosity. You were just willing to lean into something that looked interesting and you created, um, you saw the bigger opportunities behind what could have seemed like a, a small start um, in, in a startup of only 10 people. So what led you from being in that consulting firm into creating what became one of the original like behemoths of, of the dot-com era? Maybe I, don't, I don't think Brent and I ever thought we would have created Behemoth, but maybe we did. Um, well, it was Brent, you know, and all power to Brent, my dear friend, a still lifelong friend, always will be, uh, who I met, as I said, at Spectrum. We worked together on many projects. I was his junior. He loves it when I talk about this um, and did all the grunt work for him. The high point of which was when he refused to be sent to South Korea for three months because there was a project there. And so Muppet Head had to go. Actually, it was fantastic. I learned a lot about South Korea. And um, after three years in that company, Brent said, right, I'm going to go off and try and start this business that he'd had the idea for. And um, we both uh, decided to leave the company and get some experiences in different places and then go on to start lastminute.com. I mean, a slight shortening of the real story, but it was entirely due to my friendship with him and him trusting me to help start his idea. So again, immense piece of luck. Yeah, I, I relate to that as well. Sometimes those friendships are the people that you surround yourself with just through serendipity completely change your life. And I think one of the greatest um, patterns that I've seen in successful people is acknowledging and surrounding themselves with these, these exceptional people um, who think differently and see opportunities when the rest of the world doesn't quite see it that way. So what was the beginning of your journey like there when you're co-founding lastminute.com? This is in the, in the 90s. Yeah, this was in the late 90s. So we started writing the business plan. I think it was at Christmas 97 and then got into it probably in early 1998. And, you know, I often talk to audiences and you know, young children and school children and university students. And you put your hand up and you say, can anyone here remember life before the Internet? And they look at me as though I've just dropped like a Flintstone from a prehistoric era. I, I could literally be bam, bam. And um, it's uh, quite extraordinary to think that even that short, you know, my half lifetime ago, it was, you know, you, I put a phone here on my desk, look, and you picked up a phone to make a call. I remember in the office when email first emerged, we would call each other to see if people had got the email that you just sent. Yep. And then suddenly, boom, it became clear, especially to Brent, who really saw it, that people were going to buy things on the internet. So that early journey in lastminute.com, the kind of 97, 98, 99, we were just growing the business. To be honest, of course, it was about building our company, but it was as much about building trust credibility and belief that the internet was going to survive <laughs> was going to be a force that people were going to change their businesses around and that we as consumers were going to use so i honestly felt my job was of course predominantly building lastminute.com but mainly it was a cheerleader for the internet we had to convince investors we had to convince suppliers we had to convince employees and most importantly our potential customers so that was my job chief cheerleader for the internet it's not a small job. I started my career in tech very similar stage. You were, you were a few years ahead of me, but not by much. My first job working for Jeff Bezos after I graduated from university was in 2002. I joined Amazon and we were having those same conversations on the other side of the world of trying to build in this consumer relationship, this relationship of trust that had never existed before. And like you said, convince investors that this was going to be a thing that wasn't just going to disappear overnight. Yes. You had the wonderful problem of actually very rapid scale and then the crazy ride that we went through together of after the dot-com bust, you ended up with a very, very successful exit. What was that process like? What do you think were some of the, the core things that you got right that helped you survive the ups and downs? Well, I mean, I think a, a bunch of stuff, I, and I don't mean to keep referring to luck, but timing is everything and, you know, we were lucky we had timed things right we pushed hard in the early days although we took our company public one week before the dot-com burst bottle burst and although we took a lot of shit for that and it was a very very hardcore moment in the company's development we still had cash we could continue our plans we could make acquisitions and that was phenomenally important so i'd say luck and timing were essential and keeping pushing on and getting things out there and moving fast not breaking things, mending things, but moving fast. The second thing I 
I would say this, of course, the co-founding relationship when you get it right is such a fundamental strength. You know, the fact that you have two people driving an organization when it works well, in my opinion, helps the company grow faster, perhaps more uh, resiliently. It can do more with more breadth and depth because you've got two people who are able to take more and take different roles, as you say, and so forth. So I do think that that was phenomenally important for us. But you know, you cannot, and I feel as though this is what I've learned repeatedly through the last 25 years, and it's so, so trite and kind of obvious, but unless you really feel it, I'm not sure people really understand it. It is all about the people. I mean, full stop. I feel like I've learned that from the boards of Chanel or Twitter in Parliament through to starting things. It is all about the people. And what I think Luxman it got right in the early days was empowering a young team, making people feel a real sense of ownership, both in terms of kind of inspiring ownership, like feeling like they wanted to do it, but also real ownership of problems and accountability. So you know there's no special source in building companies you have to have a great product obviously but you also have to have the right people to build it and that team and those early committed people were to my mind the most important thing that we got right yeah i couldn't agree more this is a recurring theme with my consulting clients now is really focusing on people first then the systems for yeah. and then um and being yeah focused on your on your users and the people you know i feel i sorry to interrupt you i feel like i've just learned this again and again and i see it now at, on the board at twitter or shell wherever you know people great people will work out the right product and the product market fit and all of the things amazing people will do those things well if you are constantly trying to find the people and put the right people in the roles and not aiming high enough then you're going to get stuck in the loops again and again so it sounds so freaking obvious doesn't it but in my opinion very few businesses manage to nail this consistently. And it's just, it's interesting that that's often still a challenge. Yeah, my own small ecosystem here is definitely proof of that. Every single founder who comes to me uh, for consulting services usually comes when things start breaking. And that's the first thing we address. We realize that as you just pointed out, they haven't set the bar high enough. They're trying to move so fast that they just yeah. prioritized. Bring anybody in. Exactly, getting people in the seats and then keep yeah. going really have to get the people right first. I think that's yeah. incredible wisdom to, to share with our listeners. So as you had this amazing exit, um, this enormous success and became probably the original like real unicorns, especially within Europe, um, walk me through your journey of where you chose to focus your energy after that, because you've had some incredible impact after that. So I'd love to see kind of the progression. Was it was it purposeful and thoughtful or did, did you kind of, again, let this? Um, well, I think, you know, I am a strange kind of person. I'm not able to be in one box. And I used to get quite uh, insecure about that. You know, I'd go to a party and people say, so what are you doing now? And I feel like oh, I've got to tell them like my six new startup successes. Am I an incredible investor? Do I really know about this one subject? And actually, no, I think, no, that's not who I am. I am a generalist. I really enjoy equally working in the public policy sphere. I really do have a strong sense of social justice. I meant it very, uh, uh, in deeply when I said I wanted to go and be a prison governor. Quite a strange thing for a young woman to want to be, but I really did have that burning interest in me as much as wanting to build a successful business. So I, I've tried to channel that in my later bit of my career, or middle bit, I hope not later, and <laughs> embrace it and think, okay, I'm maybe not that person who's going to be the startup expert in London. That That's not me. But I am someone that has tried to use what I've learned to apply it to a broader range of things. And I think um, that's a kind of macro thing. It's not a plan, but that's just my personality. And I've tried to not fight against it, but build on it and use it as a strength. But I did have this very, 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 very uh, um, difficult experience. I fell out of a car in 2004, the year I was leaving lastminute.com. And I spent nearly two years in hospital. I broke pretty much as many bones as you can break without dying. I had to relearn to do everything in my life. Uh, and I only mention it because it's quite easy to look at that and think, well, that was obviously the moment when she pivoted and wanted to do all this different kind of stuff in her life. It wasn't actually like that. What it made me more determined to do is be you know, a fully paid up member of the human race and make every single minute count. It didn't never occurred to me kind of stop working and be, you know, do something different with my life. It just, I think, made me double down on wanting to contribute and try and, you know, as many people say, leave the world a bit better than you found it. So... Um, it was the combination of, you know, logistical, my life had to change because of the accident. I was not able to do one job consistently. So that prompted with, you know, me just thinking, actually, you know what, I'm this kind of person and I want to have this kind of life. 
I remind, what your comments just now reminded me of your TED talk you gave, I think it was a few years ago. <laughs> I love the title of it, by the way, which is the digital world is having a crisis. And I think in that you addressed many of those themes about wanting to create the good we want to see in the world and being really focused on purpose and vision and mission. Yeah. Um, in, that, in that TED talk you talked about, you posed three key questions in this. Yeah. And the first was, when you look back in 10 years, will you be proud of the solutions you created? And I just think that is such an important moment. And now as we're wrapping up this crazy year of 2020, and we're setting our intentions for a fresh new year of 2021, I think that's on a lot of people's minds. So um, maybe talk us through how that's informed some of the decisions you've made and where you've lent your influence and your voice um, in the second phase of your career. Yeah, I mean, the, the questions are interesting. I kind of thought, how do I try and work out, you know, lucky to be presented with lots of opportunities and how do I work out both what I want to do, but also how I want to do them. And so those questions are just my kind of personal way of navigating a complex and challenging and uh, interesting world. And, you know, I want to look back and think, have I spent time doing meaningful things? I really want to feel as though I'm working with different kinds of voices in the room or if I'm not if I'm back to our original uh, conversation if I am the only woman in the room I want to make sure I have the capacity to open the door and bring in a whole load of people that are very different to the other people in the room in there and I also want to you know not be obsessed with the internet and the world I've come from but to use it appropriately and it to inform the things I do you know to live in 2020 not 1820 and so um and I say 1820 because I'm often working in institutions you know the government or parliament or which are separate um or you know institutional life where you are helping be kind of reinvigorate using digital technology. So for me, those are the, those, that's why I frame questions in that way. I find it a helpful way to navigate. And I, but I just think that particularly, you know, through this pandemic and over the last year before that, to me, if you have any small influence in the world at all, you know, where that might be financial, it might be a voice like me, or it might be, you know, networks that you have it is imperative you use it to focus on the climate crisis i just think it is the bottom line for all of us now and that will be different for different people i'm not saying my whole working life is to do with that but it you have to show up with it to everything you do right now and it still surprises me how many people do not who have a position of influence and power and i think it's that is pretty unforgivable so that is for me the single biggest axis through which I try to judge stuff now and look at um, the problems I'm presented with or the opportunities or the things that I'm doing. I think you've been such an influence, influential voice in bringing that to the forefront of the conversation, especially within tech. And um, I'm currently judging the Entrepreneur Year, sorry, the Entrepreneur of the Year Award for GoTech, um, which is um, put on by a business leader in the UK. And the last question they always have me ask is about each of these candidates for Entrepreneur of the Year. Tell me about your bottom line, which is people, profits, and the planet. And it's very interesting, actually, that of the six categories I'm judging, that answer is usually the shortest. <laughs> because people haven't necessarily thought of it in that way, that these things can be cohesive, whether you're in fintech or a CRM agency or whatever your, your focus is in work. Yeah should be thinking about the triple bottom line. And you've hit on each of those. People, essential, profits, of course, that's how we keep going, but planet, we have to have that as a core part of our philosophy. How are you seeing that being interwoven into tech or are you yet? Are we at the uh, I mean, I do think it's shifting and um, I, you know, I think this period of time that we're all living through right now where much has been discussed about how people's creativity is emerging in different ways and the kind of necessity of, the mother of invention and all the stuff that uh, people will be aware of and um, how we've been framing this particular period of time. But so, so I think some things are changing and I think people have been inventing new things, but the bottom line for me is you have to follow the money. Where is the money going? Has, has really significant venture capital money, uh, general partnership money, LB money, the world you know probably better than me, has that significantly shifted into climate-based solutions? And I don't think enough yet has. I remember doing a speech in Parliament a couple of years ago now and working out, just finger on the back of an envelope, I think that about only about 5% of VC money was going into climate-based innovation. Now that slightly was a strange number. It didn't include green energy. It was kind of trying to look more at tech 
the tech world. But even if I was wrong by a factor of 10, right? Even if it was 35%, not 3.5%, that was still half as where it should be. So I just, whenever I read about um, another CRM bit of software getting funded, I just think, what the fuck? I mean, this is not what is going to save the next decade. And it is too urgent right now. And I don't blame someone if they see an opportunity in B2B marketing, they want to go after it. But I really do think there's something skewy with all of the values that we're putting into where to invest and reward if we are still building, you know, products that are not going to save us because it is that urgent. I have no doubt in my mind it is that urgent. There's no good in uh, creating a company if there's no planet here to, to host us. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of this comes from, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, the, the challenge, again, that we started a conversation around, which is the truth is that only 9% of venture capital partners are women. And the truth is that less, you know, whatever it is, 2 or 3% of venture capital money goes to female founders. And that is just one axis through which to cut diversity, right? If you look at race or you look at socioeconomic group or geographical split, no wonder we're not getting to some bigger climate innovation, in my opinion, because it's going to come from different places, it's going to come from communities that are facing it much more uh, intently than I am sitting in the middle of London in my nice home. And I just think it's just all part of the same ecosystem. It's not just about the founders, it's also about the spectrum of... Um, Sorry, it's not just about the money, it's about the spectrum of money that the, the spectrum of founders, sorry, that the money helps support. I couldn't agree more. That's definitely been my experience as, as a woman in tech, especially in the early, early years, um, being the only woman in the room. And, and really, I was grateful to work for some very, very insightful CEOs who recognized the need for that unique voice in the room, for someone who had a different perspective and, and was um, asking questions that no one else in the room maybe would have thought yeah. of. And I know your experience at Twitter has, has brought that to the forefront and you joining the board and um, helping them kind of think through this experience for, for everyone. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, of how you've seen your voice uh, uniquely influencing some of these decisions that are very, very top of mind, uh, especially as we're closing out the last decade and entering a new one, um, especially around you know, the discussions around um, bullying or creating a safe space and um, especially the way in which women are often victimized on that differently. Um, and Twitter's an example of that. So in your board membership, that might give an interesting perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I would really caution uh, anybody thinking that one board member has a particular influence on anything. I mean, I just don't think board members are that important and they shouldn't be, right? They should be supporting, challenging, helping the executive team move the company on. And that's what's happening at Twitter. The executive team is moving the company on. Have I met, raised issues that are important to me? Of course, um, as have many board members, but in the end, I one voice in a huge system of change that Twitter has been going through over the last three, four years while I've been on the board. So um, I certainly don't credit myself. I credit the company with doing the right thing more and more and more and us as a board supporting that and encouraging it and continually trying to uh, encourage the company to go farther further and faster you know and Jack has said this himself when you have a company started by four white men of course things are designed in a certain way they happen to be in my opinion four pretty good white men right there's plenty that might have designed something that was way worse you can see apps emerging all the time I was looking at Parler the other day I thought oh Jesus Christ Parler's going to give me a nervous breakdown but um you know, the truth is that I don't think there is a woman on the planet who has not walked down a dark street and felt somewhat threatened at some moment in her life. I just don't think they exist. That is a common experience that we have. And I just don't think that's true of men. I'm not saying all men feel confident all the time, but it's just very different. And I think you therefore build products and services reflecting a worldview or a sense that you have. And that's why it's super important to have those diverse voices, not just uh, um uh, one bit of the funnel but through the whole chain so that represent you can have different life views represented in products and services yeah <clears throat> excuse me i've been really impressed with the decisions that twitter's been making recently especially around the u.s presidential elections to see them flagging proactively um things that might be misleading or you know the mis misinformation era and making some hard other companies are not making, including what I call my home planet, <laughs> including Google. We've got some very complicated issues on the YouTube side as well, where um, there aren't simple answers, but I appreciate those who are leaning into this and trying to create 
a space that's more um, based in trust, <laughs> in actual facts, and empowering the right voices to come to the forefront and giving us, using this technology, this goes back to your, your three questions of your TED Talk. Are we going to be proud of what we've done looking back 10 years from now? Are the voices in the room? And are we using the gifts of modern technology to empower and accelerate um, these, these changes that we need? And that's something that has been essential in this crazy pandemic year plus US election, plus Black Lives Matter, all the very important discussions that are happening globally now and raising those those empowered fact-based voices. Yes, well, I'm, I'm currently chairing in the UK Parliament the uh, Select Committee on COVID-19, the long-term implications, and we're doing a formal inquiry right now on what has this process of accelerated digitization meant for, in a way, the real world. And, you know, it's irrefutable that we have gone through a kind of a leapfrog, maybe in eight months in the UK. I don't know, different countries, but we have slightly different timeframes. We've gone through five years of accelerated digital trends. You only have to look at what's happening in the high street. Shops that maybe would have collapsed over a longer view have just gone boom because they haven't managed to reinvent themselves around the internet. Now, it's different to what you're saying, but this massively intense period where we've all effectively had to live online is incredibly important because the um, the structural changes that maybe would have supported growth over a longer view have not shifted, whereas some of the trends have shifted incredibly quickly. So people have been left behind. You know, the UK, if I look at the UK, um, we still have many millions of adults that can't use the internet, don't use the internet. Can you imagine having been in this period of time with kids having to be homeschooled, no access to information, even entertainment in the same way that everybody else is having? So that is not a problem that has yet been kind of solved in quotation marks. It may have been over the next five years, but it has intently come to the fore right now. And you've seen profound inequalities emerging that have just exaggerated and deepened the inequalities from previously. So this is such an important area. And, you know, it's as true for Twitter's role in the world and how voices get raised up as it is for kind of the much more mundane grunt work of how you deliver government services or how you get people information or how you make sure people can be educated remotely or whatever the different public service strand is. How can we become and join this conversation to become advocates for digital inclusion and advancement? How can we be supportive of, of opening this up and recognizing those who don't have the privilege of access yet? Because I think many of us in the States and in Europe especially forget that there's a lot of people who aren't yet regularly online. They aren't digital savvy. They don't have access in their home easily. What can we, where can we focus our efforts now to make the I think it's, you're, you're, you're right, it's super important to remember. First, I think it's just tipped in the last few months that more people are online than offline now in the world, but only just, right? And so it's not like we're talking 80% of the world is online. We're actually probably talking about more like 60, which leaves a lot of people who are not. So that's just the important thing to remember. The thing that I find interesting and hard is that you have got this quite binary. Okay, they've never used a computer. They don't have access to the internet because you are poor or you haven't got infrastructure or you haven't got the skills. Maybe you can't read, maybe you've got first language, all those things. But then actually there's a gradation and there's a scale. You know, I could name many of my fellow parliamentarians who just don't understand the digital world. And to me, of course, it's a different kind of issue, but it's related because the level of digital understanding while making public policy decisions or voting on legislation or asking questions of the government is just not good enough. And so I think there is an opportunity, and that's what I'm really interested in trying to help the UK become, a truly digital understanding nation where not only does everybody have access to the internet at a great price, um, you know, wherever they are, you know, whatever their language, all of that, but also we have developed ways, frameworks, spaces where people can be curious about the digital world, use it to inform their working lives, their private lives, whatever it might be, be a truly digital country. And that doesn't feel out of reach, I think, but it needs intent and prioritization. And I think we would personally, I think particularly a relatively small country like the UK would benefit enormously on the world stage if we put that at the heart of our priorities. I agree. My last five years working at Google in particular was focused on exactly that around educating policymakers on technologies, especially emerging technologies, so they could appropriately choose legislation that reflected the values and the needs of their community. 
And then secondly, we were focused on bringing the next billion users online. And for Google, that took a couple of, of methods. First was in designing for mobile first, because many of the, these first time internet users are coming online. They've skipped the desktop stage and the laptop stage and are coming online purely on mobile. And so needing to design systems that work in rural areas have fast internet connections and having them really tight so we you know so it is accessible but then creating these conversations having people understand what are the abilities of ai what should or shouldn't we be doing with this technology and starting those conversations from the legislature all the way down to our family dining tables of how do we want to see our values reflected in this emerging technology that will soon be very very pervasive in all of our daily lives so I think there's there's no more important time now while we can still address some of the in, inherent um, unconscious bias that comes into AI and all the more need for us to have the right voices in the room, because once we have this kind of code base built into our daily lives, it's going to be really hard to undo some of that unconscious bias. I completely agree. And, you know, I think I think in, in my experience of trying to get stuff done in countries at a national level as opposed to an individual corporate level, of course, you've got to join up the system. It's got to be partly an action by individuals and by companies. But you also, I think, need to prioritise this as the prime minister of a country or the leader of a country. This has got to be one of the number one aims of you know, the next phase of digitisation. I was much struck when I heard Tony Blair speak at a conference recently. And he said if he was in government now, this would be his number one priority. You know, not peace, not you know, benefits, not rail networks, not health, but this would be because he saw it as unlocking everything else. And it was reassuring that I didn't feel like a crackpot that I think this too, but um, unless you think Tony Blair is crackpot, which is completely possible. So I am um, I was I just thought, yeah, this is this you've got to modernize your country effectively, and this is this is the key thing to do that. Yeah, I know that education is a huge focus for you. What do you see in the future of education? Obviously, digital savvy skills are going to be really important. Are there other elements that you think are, are key to developing leaders that we are, our planet is going to need in the future? Well, I, I mean, a huge number of things. I'm very lucky to be chancellor of the Open University, which is kind of like the original digital university. If people don't know, Open University was started here in the UK and then late um, 60s, 1969, by Prime Minister Harold Wilson, credible forethought. He said, everybody should be able to go to university, regardless of their background, Not doesn't matter what grades they got, everyone should have a shot at university. So anyone can come to the Open University, it really doesn't matter. You can study for 10 years, you can, I've met people who've studied for 45 years, you can study for two years. You can do it in any time frame. you can do it any subject, you can do it in chunks, whatever. It's very personalized to you, but it's all online. Uh, you have used to have the opportunity to meet your tutor and you sometimes still do but it's a predominantly remote university so you can reach people in the places they are as opposed to them having to come to you and it's phenomenal it's an incredible tool for social mobility and it allows people to you know maybe move from one social worker category to the next social worker category or to get into becoming a member of the armed forces whatever it might be um, and I think that, you know, the OU was, was on to something 50 years ago, you know, they were the first and they've certainly not been the last. We've seen other uh, places emerge. And I think clearly that this opportunity for continual learning through your career to support your career when you're in work or out of work is going to become much more of a theme. This notion, I think, that you have these moments like exams when you're 16 or 18. I just think that will quite quickly fade out because I think people will see that it's, of course, some moments are important in accreditation and so on, but it's going to be a different way, that I think, that we think about education. I also think in tandem with that, it will just become more and more personalised. You know, I have identical twin sons, they're four. And, you know, as anybody who may have twins listening, you'll know they're not identical. They look it, but they have very different personalities. And they're just, as they're about to enter the school system, I think, what are we doing? Sending these children into sausage factories when we should be, you know, respecting and enjoying and nurturing the things that are different about them. But of course, that's really freaking hard in a classroom of 30 or sometimes 40 kids. But I think that the tools that we'll be able to deploy over time will allow children a much more personalized experience. And I think that will be phenomenally interesting and important. Be incredibly empowering, not for them as individuals, but also in accomplishing. I see how this is woven into your mission of accomplishing more inclusion, um, getting more underrepresented voices into different industries yeah. and creating a pipeline of talent from 
underrepresented communities. That's been a, a big focus um, actually on this podcast quite coincidentally. <laughs> we um, One of my first interviews was with Saul Khan, who has the Khan Academy oh, with yes. digitizing yeah. information, making um, tutoring available to others to bringing underrepresented populations online for the first time. And um, some of, a lot of my consulting clients are also in this space about, about bringing more freedom of information on, onto the internet. I, um, yeah. <clears throat> I think it's probably one of the most important focuses we can have now. And I just love that Open University, Khan Academy, perhaps it was, um, Sal Khan described it on this podcast as perhaps benevolent aliens have come down and given you a head start <laughs> to um, create what the future needs most, especially in a year of lockdown, where so many um, students' education pipeline has been yeah. disrupted. And so many, especially the young students are having a really hard time adjusting to yeah. this new normal um, and, and offering these solutions that, that give people an alternative to pipeline to education. And I also think you are um, addressing something that's an active debate. It has not stopped and I don't think it will anytime soon in Silicon Valley around traditional education. So Google is famous. Yeah. Originally we had a very, you know, acknowledged snobby uh, pipeline system where really they only recruited from the same top 10 universities in the world. And that meant you yeah. same 20 year old white guys creating the future of the internet. And thankfully they've had this wonderful pivot um, that Sundar Pichai has been leading about creating alternative yeah. systems into um, digital, especially tech skills. So are you seeing some trends on the UK side? Cause I'm mostly exposed to that from the American side where we are very, yeah traditional education obsessed and then we have a few loud voices like Elon Musk who um, says you don't need it you know Rich, the Richard Bransons of the world who are self-starters and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. didn't work for them got lucky yeah yeah um, I mean I think that the, there are, there's a bunch of ed tech stuff happening in the UK and I think I'm right in saying that the UK has got one of the most uh, well-funded ed tech sectors and ed tech number of startups in Europe so it's a very rich um, area clearly we have a phenomenal bunch of universities for the size of our country not just Oxford and Cambridge but Imperial uh, King's UCL and London colleges so you know it's very deep in our culture and the research and development alongside those universities influences and diaspora far beyond the reach of uh, much of our other economic powers so education the not just the business of education but the research around education and um, the quality is very culturally significant in the UK so I think that's why you do see so many edtech startups um, you know I find it hard because I went to some of the best school in the country and then I went to Oxford and I you know I had this traditional traditional education so I feel very conscious when people like me say oh everything's going to be thrown out people look and go well you were freaking lucky you can sit there you had every opportunity given to you which I did right so I, I have no idea how it will map out and I have no idea structurally what the system will look like but I do know that learning and education is very important it doesn't matter how you get it or how you do it perhaps but it is very important and I don't think that Richard Branson had no education I don't think that Richard Branson kind of I think he was learning all the time and I think that was maybe a mindset or maybe a structural thing for him but I, I would caution this idea that you don't need to have an education that's clearly not true the more you can learn the more you read the more curious you are about the world it all helps I agree I think the most important thing is for me at least in my educational experience was learning how to ask the right questions I yes. Undergrad, it was very traditional where you're still memorizing, the coursework was mapped out for you, there was kind of this pipeline you were being put through. And um, people have asked me, because I did my PhD during a, a critical part of, of our modern economy, I left Amazon after three years, just as they were becoming profitable and my stock options were, were actually meeting something. And then yep. missed Google's um, original IPO, which probably would have made me like, 10x more, you know, wealthier than I am now had I been there just one year earlier. But really, I literally, when I say that that time I spent at in just in a few years of my PhD changed the trajectory of my life and career because I just learned to ask the right questions. I learned to lean into a conversation that I didn't understand and stop being afraid of looking stupid or you know not presenting a, a perfect kind of dialogue. 
And that enabled me to be more, so much more effective in my career at Google and then now as consulting of just leaning in into that process. So for me, it's all about that. If you live in an environment where you are surrounded by people who teach you that skill, great. If you can just be an insatiably curious person in a remote community somewhere, great. But I think you're exactly right. Like these elements are essential. I think education is so important. I actively debate this with my husband who's Spanish. And he has a different uh, perspective on, on what a successful pipeline looks like for, for the next mm -hmm. generation of talents. And, um, but for me, it, it does take a more traditional path. But it's been so interesting for me to be exposed yeah. to these alternative paths into really yeah. important careers. I studied history, right? So I really, it resonates with me when you say about asking questions because you, know, you have to enter subjects you know absolutely nothing about you know thousands of years ago sometimes in the bits that i studied you're never going to meet the people you know we have a conversation you have to work out about context authenticity you have to look at evidence all the skills that are so dominating how we're thinking about you know public discourse right now and as you say you have to also just weigh in and be curious about something that you don't may not know anything about the week before you're meant to be an expert in the week later which i think probably has determined my whole career so yeah, I think knowing how to ask questions and knowing how to put the answers in the, in the right context. So it's not just about the questions for me, it's also about how you understand answers. 100%. I, that for me is the key in any sex, successful person I've met. And I've, I've met a disproportionate number of world leaders and <laughs> CEOs. No. I, I acknowledge that my, my peer group is, is um, unusual. But that for me is the common denominator. They're insatiably curious and they're lifelong learners. Uh, Sacha Nadell, of the CEO of Microsoft, I was listening to a podcast interview with him yesterday. Yeah. He reminded me of their, their modern theme now of not being know-it-alls, but being learn-it-alls. And I think yeah, that's a good to this like amazing pivot that he had at, at Microsoft when he took over, he really changed the culture in a way that most, I think we can now call Microsoft yeah company most yes legacy companies cannot do that kind of transformation yeah, no I, I think that was yeah. the single common denominator in this remarkable transformation that he's led at microsoft yeah. it's it's interesting isn't it it's interesting that both him and sundar at google neither of whom i know i haven't met such a very briefly i was in warm-up packs at a conference which is quite funny i'm like a kind of fluffer um but both of them are uh immigrant families both Indian backgrounds where, you know, education and learning and that kind of reinvention is so culturally significant that maybe that gave attention to, they brought a kind of cultural uh, difference and uh, therefore created that ability to reinvent that tension of not sitting on your laurels and thinking that you were the best in the world, perhaps. I think it's not by accident. I completely agree that their unique backgrounds and perspective led them to be the kind of thoughtful, inclusive leaders that they are. I was very lucky. My, my first three years at Google, I was on the product team and Sundar and I reported to the same manager. So I, okay, so you I saw him on a daily basis. We've obviously nice. trajectories, <laughs> but he um, is one of the kindest souls you could ever meet. And he is very thoughtful. He shared with me in those early Google years stories of, of his family and you know, literally living in a home with a dirt floor, with no TV, with no access to that. But he, his family prioritized education and just, you know, the, the, the Indian version of the American principle, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and creating opportunities. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, they, yeah. they appear very, very limited. And that's the core of, of what has been a founding principle for me. And what we talk about here on Bet On Yourself is how can you create yeah. opportunities? And for me, it is very much about that, about asking questions, seeking out opportunities, being um, undeterred when, when something appears limited or hard to do. And for me, um, these leaders are all people who find joy in doing hard things. And I think you belong mm -hmm. firmly in this camp. You found a way you just lean into it. It's not always joy, but, it, yeah, but I definitely find it more satisfying trying to think about the difficult problems. Exactly. Probably because this maybe sounds counterintuitive, you know, I do really enjoy working through stuff with other people. You know, I think that complex things you cannot do alone, right? You are always talking about system change to a degree if it's really, truly complicated. You know, issues in government, policy changes, building a company. You may have this kind of hero idea of individuals, but I don't believe that view. I think that everything is all about how you work in a system, whether it's a system of you and your team or the bigger system. So that's partly why I enjoy it, because 
you are thrust into complex networks and webs when you're looking at complex challenges and different ways of working, different motivations, different ways of trying to get stuff done. And that can be immensely rewarding if you open your mind to it, I think. Incredibly, incredibly rewarding. I think you're right. There's, there's not always <laughs> the foundational emotion of joy. But <laughs> no, I think the foundational emotion quite often has been some deep anxiety for me, but I'm not very, uh, I don't get that stressed, but I've had some moments recently. I just thought, God, I really want to get this right. Why am I, this is why I'm finding this so stressful is that I'm trying to work in a complex web of different personalities and I'm not doing a very good job of it. And I think that uh, I really, really, really want to. And that's, that's, you can find the joy when you push through that. But you know, even now doing the things I'm doing, I still have those moments very frequently. So it doesn't shift. I think if you're self-aware or try to be, then you realize how most of the time you're doing a so-so job. It's very rare you're doing a, knocking it out of the park. And that's quite, quite a sobering and important thing to remember, I think. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up as a, a core reminder of what success looks and feels like. It feels messy, it feels challenging, it feels like you're outside of your company. And it doesn't ever, I mean, it genuinely, sometimes you might sit back and think, oh, I'm pleased I did that, like, but very rarely in the moment. I mean, I genuinely feel like, okay, brilliant, some people think I've been successful, but there's so much stuff to do. I'm so not even, I'm like drowning in things I'm getting wrong or not doing well or papers I haven't had enough time to read or things I haven't got involved in, that, you know, all that stuff. I just think that nobody that I know who have reached any level that other people might determine as in quotation marks successful feels constantly like they're successful. It's just, it's not a, a state I recognize. And I, you know, make of that what you will, but I think it's important if to keep feeling that that tension about there's always more to do yeah always more to do that's absolutely true um so as we wrap up our conversation i'd love to shift our focus to the future what has you excited what gives you hope for the future what is the good or the change that you're seeing in the world or or that you want to create yeah, I mean, so many things. I am naturally an optimistic person. I feel like my optimism has been somewhat tempered over the last, not just this year, like everybody, but the last two, three years. And I, you know, I don't want to sound like a uh, bleak person, but, you know, the climate catastrophe has landed very deeply in me. My partner, Chris, works in marine conservation. For a long time, he's been saying to me, why are you worrying about the internet? This is relevant sort the ocean down we might have a shot at saving the planet so we've, we've, we've kind of made my worlds collide and understand much more deeply about this so but talking to him you know i also feel immense joy and optimism about it because there are a few big things that we can do that will really make our planet work and so as i say what i gives me optimism and hope is that those there are smart people young people thinking about those things people in the policy world thinking about those things, it, you know, David Attenborough making documentaries about those things. It is achievable. We just have to put our collective minds to it and hassle our legislators and get on with it. So I want to use my voice for that. I do feel optimistic about it. I think there are, you know, we must save our biodiversity. We mustn't let any more species die if we can possibly help it. The world is an incredible, beautiful, wonderful place. Travel is something that gives me energy. I felt very, very trapped in the last eight months, like everyone, but it's given me a real kind of creative squash because I feel like I get so much energy when I'm allowed to go on a trip somewhere exciting. So we must save our planet and we must do it with joy because it's a great place to save. You know, the planet will be fine, that's the irony. It's all of us that will suffer. So we have that choice to make. And I feel equally pessimistic and optimistic about it, if I'm uh, being uh, candid. But, you know, many, many things give me joy. I, and I don't want to fall into the trap of older people like me always saying, oh, young people will give me hope. It shouldn't just be on them. I hate this thing that, oh, young people will sort it out. We've all fucked it up, but everybody under 25 will now sort it out for us. Maybe, but come on, everybody, you are, we're all still alive. We couldn't put it on the younger generation. There are some amazing young people doing incredible things. Of course, they give you optimism, but it's not just on them. We have all got to step into the next decade, help sort out the climate, work through this pandemic, you know, make sure that um, this next phase of digitization reaches everyone, help, uh, therefore, you know, leave the world a better place. So many things give me optimism. Many people make me feel optimistic, uh, but that's no excuse to not get on and do the work yourself as well. I find that very inspiring. And I, I so appreciate your insertion of joy, especially at the end of this very dramatic year we've had. <laughs> 
Can I just add one thing that we haven't talked about at all, which I really feel so strongly. I feel very lucky that my whole life I've had a kind of hinterland and that for me has been a cultural hinterland uh, and travel to a degree. You know, I'm not a particular, I can't ride a bike anymore. I can't get on a horse. I, I, there's lots of physical things that are closed to me, but this is not closed, right? And in this moment of pandemic, I have tried to read a lot of poetry and I just urge people to feel as though there are moments of joy to be had. If you pick up a book, you may not feel like you can read a whole novel. You may have children screaming around you. You may be too depressed. You may be losing your job, but pick up a poem because that is where you will find joy or you will find solace or you will find comfort or empathy or some kind of inspiration for the future. And I think it's not often that not enough that uh, business, supposed business people talk about the importance of hinterland, but I think it is fundamental in human resilience. Thank you. That, that is not talked about enough. That isn't something that comes on my radar very often. So thank you for that. Yeah. Do you have an entry, a recommendation of someone who hasn't uh, been exposed to that? Do you have a recommendation of a place to start in inviting this? Well, that is a brilliant question. You, know, you can see all these books behind me on the bookshelf. I could pick out a poetry book, but you know what? I, the, there's just so much, such much, so many rich resources. There's a fantastic website called poetryfoundation.org. Look at it and see. You, know, you can type in feminist poetry, you can type in war poetry, you can type in, you know, um, pandemic poetry. I'm sure you could find something. So look at it, pick out something. Might be great, might be awful, but keep going. The great thing about poetry is that um, you will be left with something from even the shortest reading of something uh, that might seemingly feel quite inconsequential. It will sit with you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your experiences, your lessons learned, and, and some challenges as well. Challenges and resources that our listeners can take away to really make a difference in the world and empower themselves in their work and their families and their communities. Thank you for thank being you here in the conversation. No, well, thank you for inviting me and have more women. I may be the first, but I definitely hope I'm not going to be the last. No, no. To, use the, to use the words of a very important woman right now. Yeah, we've got a lot more coming in the pipeline, so stay tuned for sure. Right. Thank you, Martha. Great to meet you. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands for you to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.